Hello and welcome to UCD ScholarCast. My name is Malcolm Sen and I'm the series editor of Irish Studies and the Environmental Humanities. The following lecture, entitled On Development, Waste and Ghosts, will be given by Una Frawley, lecturer in the Department of English at the National University of Ireland, Maynooth. On Development, Waste and Ghosts Movements in eco-criticism that call for links to be made with post-colonialism challenge us, here in Ireland and outside of it, to do work that has not come naturally. As critics like Rob Nixon have pointed out, eco-criticism and post-colonialism were, in fact, often at odds with each other as the fields arose, operating at a disconnect. Ursula Heise has cannily summarized some of the early divergences of the fields noted by critics. Of particular interest for my purposes are two of these. First, the fact that eco-critics in the past tended to be concerned with one national space, while post-colonial critics were necessarily concerned with at least two and often more cultural realms. The second divergence of relevance to my talk today is the fact that eco-critics have tended, as Heise puts it, to be deeply interested in ties to place, while post-colonialists foreground displacement. In what follows, I focus on three national spaces and will be concerned with the ways in which deep ties to place that we associate with national pride draw on colonial notions of land development and so also always foreground displacement. Following the lead of critics such as Nixon and Heise, and bearing in mind Moretti's notion of distant reading, I look at colonial notions of land development, comparing the ways in which a series of colonial commentaries on what are now the United States, Australia, and Ireland offers the opportunity to trace attitudes towards landscape and place that in fact function as canny assessments of land as commodity. What I'm concerned with considering here is how initial colonial declarations about landscape might have lasting effect in a particular space. Since we can track these attitudes over time and in a range of places and texts, it becomes possible to consider how initial colonial attitudes impact upon and create long-lasting attitudes towards landscape and development. In the American case, it would seem that the wilderness tradition, so influential in terms of eco-criticism, is definitively drawn from colonialist ideologies, which suggests that eco-criticism itself, in earlier incarnations, takes some of its positions from colonial rhetoric. In Australia, a similar concern with wilderness is evident in lasting notions of national cultural memory. Again, I would argue, the result of early colonial attitudes towards land and development. Finally, I will turn to the Irish case, which is quite different in some ways, and will argue that a different attitude towards land and development persists here. The kind of exploratory comparative work that I'm doing here asks us, I suggest, to reconsider our earlier readings of any of these spaces individually, and I'll close by considering some particular implications for Ireland and its relationship to its environment. Early eco-critical theory is informed, overly informed, I would suggest, by the significance granted to the wilderness in American thought. The wilderness tradition in literature frequently emphasizes the experience of the individual in nature. This is an experience that, by the time we move beyond the Puritan's anxiety about being exiled in the howling wilderness to the realm of the transcendentalists 200 years later, is marked by a simultaneous commitment to the sublime, which can be seen as a submission to that Puritan anxiety and an appreciation of it. 
At the foundation of this tradition, then, we receive the perspective of the most often male gaze assessing and interpreting landscape for development, or, later, pointed containment from development in spaces like national parks, which interact with the developed landscape beyond, the way that Disney World reflects and refracts the consumer ideologies beyond its perimeter, an idea to which I will return. This perspective and that inclination to assess land as potential value and for the services it potentially provides is one that crosses cultural boundaries and time frames, obviously, but for the moment I will stay with the powerfully influential American version of the wilderness because of its centrality to early eco-criticism. The so-called wilderness tradition is specific, historically and culturally, to the United States and its early colonial situation. It draws on colonists' sense of the individual as necessarily self-reliant and emphasizes that individual's self-reliance as taking place in a new world of abundance and bounty that could potentially respond to hard work. This wilderness tradition has long been emphasized to American schoolchildren in the teaching of songs such as America the Beautiful, which famously praises the landscape in profoundly pastoral terms and forcefully demonstrates the reach of wilderness in American cultural memory. O beautiful for spacious skies, for amber waves of grain, for purple mountain majesties above the fruited plain. It is seen in other songs, less sung now perhaps, like Woody Guthrie's This Land is Your Land, but which remain present in the American imagination of generations. From the redwood forests to the Gulf Stream waters, this land was made for you and me. This popular sense of the landscape as bounteous, productive, graced by a god's goodwill and made for you and me, is amazingly close to and reflects the rhetoric deployed by countless American thinkers and writers, and shows how cultural memory can adhere over time. And yet this is not a specifically American ideology. This belief system is replicated and redeployed in other circumstances and continues to be deployed today as colonial rhetoric. In the American context, we see the ethic of the wilderness tradition emerge powerfully in classics of the American environmental tradition, in authors like Emerson and Thoreau. Emerson articulates an American perspective of self, the I, first person singular, and I, a primary organ with which we observe and experience the world, determining a selfhood rooted in nature. Thoreau, springboarding from Emerson's philosophical position, decides, famously, to live it to become self-reliant, to live in nature, to truly awaken each day, to be the I, I, shaping both the perspective and the environment. Walden retains its position as a foundational text in both the American and environmental literary canons, and for good reason. It captures not merely an American mood and movement, but also manages to describe far more generally the sense that part of being modern was a move away from nature, a sentiment which Thoreau deplored. And Thoreau realized, cannily, that to grow your own vegetables, to refuse to purchase, was a radical form of protest not only in environmental terms, but in a host of political ones. Thoreau's Walden is a testament not only to the powerful pull of solitary experience in nature, but also, however, to the ways in which the colonial mindset maintained itself in nascent American cultural memory. Thoreau's Walden is a testament not only to the powerful pull of solitary experience in nature, but also, however, to the ways in which the colonial mindset maintained itself in nascent American cultural memory. There is a sense in which Thoreau, like countless other colonial and early Americans, had a strong sense of entitlement to be able to live as he did in the woods. 
the fact that such self-sufficiency relied upon land use is not always directly discussed. While Walden is scathing about land ownership, Walden Pond itself was on land owned by Emerson, Thoreau was enthusiastic about Western expansion and does not pay a great deal of attention to the implications of this expansion for indigenous Americans. His attitudes and expressions, so long at the heart of American environmentalism, are also, I would suggest, intensely problematic because of this sort of conflict, and, as such, reflect inherited colonial attitudes. Over 250 years before Thoreau's time, after explorers began to arrive in North America from England, so-called promotional literature for colonial settlement began to be circulated, outlining various inducements to move across the Atlantic. Prime among the draws, of course, was the landscape itself, which, by virtue of seeming undeveloped and wild, to use Thoreau's preferred term, was there for the taking. The soil was promising, and the new territory offered the opportunity for successful plantations. Richard Hacklett's writings on the North American colonies are among the best and most influential examples of Elizabethan treaties directed at government, since they formulate and theorize the idea of the colony and its land in a fashion so rigorous as to surpass what had gone before. A particular discourse concerning the great necessity and manifold commodities that are like to grow to this realm of England by the Western discoveries lately attempted, written in the year 1584, was dedicated to Queen Elizabeth I and had been written under commission to Walter Raleigh, who was aware that the Queen needed further convincing of the desirability of colonizing areas of America. Hacklett's language is remarkably direct for us, used as we are to contemporary language that attempts to veil or deny colonizing aims. The colonies offer to England the potential of manifold commodities at a moment when the commodities in Ireland were likely to have seemed diminished by the ongoing difficulties of the Munster plantation and were in fact diminishing in real terms since the Irish forests were being felled at a furious pace to fuel the English navy. Hucklet's A Discourse Concerning Western Planting, written in the year 1584, another armchair treatise, for he never did visit the New World himself, offered more specific advice about the American colonies. The soil recommended itself to the production of all manner of valuable commodities, with emphasis on those products that English merchants were forced to rely on European trade in the Mediterranean for, particularly olives, so valued for their oil. Beyond the potential for those particular items, the hope was expressed of avoiding any frontier wars, no doubt a possibility on the Queen's mind as relations deteriorated in Ireland. Hacklett spends time carefully outlining the potential realms to be planted, including the Caribbean. All those isles are all dispeopled and laid waste, he says. We see here what will become a common assertion for British colonialism, broadly speaking, and what is for Hacklett a stack phrase. Dispeopled lands evidently abound, as does wasteland. To conclude his arguments, Hucklet summarizes and repeats these stock phrases. The land is not merely productive, but can be made to be productive, so that the force available for potential frontier wars is also to be brought to bear on the land itself. Hucklet also makes the explicit claim for America as waste ground, though he does not claim it to be dispeopled like the Caribbean. The fact that it is undeveloped, though, implies that whatever unnamed natives, his word, the colonists might encounter and war with, simply do not count or concern him. What is of far more concern is attaching England to the land as a commodity space before the Spanish foothold is stronger. 
And finally, Hacklett points out the potential for those extra folks in England who, he says, grow up oddly to be unladen to these waste countries, a theme that will recur in other colonial ventures. The result of the view of the new world as a space of waste ground that could be commodified, indeed was a commodity, was to have a profound impact not only on the American environment, but on other colonial spaces that followed. Timothy Sweet notes that, promising new possibilities for commodity in the most general sense, the American environment invited the English to develop a new mode of political economy, one that theorized economics in terms of environmental capacity in a way that the then-dominant mode, agrarianism, had not yet done. The American colonization project was thus explicitly an economic one that relied on natural resources and, significantly, had the effect of putting a new theorization of the economy of environment into place. This shift from the realm of the relatively simple economics of generally small homesteading farms to the realm of more corporate considerations of what landscape offered in terms of production marked a turn that would have profound impact on subsequent colonization projects. However, it was not merely the perceived need for these manifold commodities that drove the American project. The justification for the cultural work of colonization was the notion that the landscape was being wasted. The word appears repeatedly in Hacklett and others, including his contemporary Spencer. The idea of wasteland was hardly new. The ancient Greeks had regularly sailed abroad and settled land that they perceived to be uninhabited. In the context of colonization projects of this era, we see a plain articulation of the idea of waste ground in Thomas More's Utopia, first published in Latin in 1516. One section stands out in considerations of the environmental impact of colonialism and will sound familiar from Hacklett's tract, published approximately 70 years later. Utopians, Moore writes, draw out a number of their citizens out of the several towns and send them over to the neighboring continent, where, if they find that the inhabitants have more soil than they can well cultivate, they fix a colony. But if the natives refuse to conform themselves to their laws, they drive them out of those bounds which they mark out for themselves and use force if they resist. For they accounted a very just cause of war for a nation to hinder others from possessing a part of that soil of which they make no use, but which is suffered to lie idle and uncultivated. Since every man has, by the law of nature, a right to such a waste portion of the earth as is necessary for his subsistence. Moore describes, of course, the historical realities of many cultures for millennia. There has always been opportunistic raiding and crossing of borders, however tenuous. Utopia describes a specific process, though. Excess citizens going abroad and, on deciding that there is more soil, again an excess, than the natives are capable of cultivating, taking over. Force can be used if the indigenous population objects because there is a natural law that deems it immoral to let cultivatable ground lie idle. Underpinning the ideology and the sense of loyalty to the motherland, making it all possible, is the perceived availability of land as commodity. Colonial justification relies on a precise logic that follows from this. The imposition of a set of cultural rules for land management, which, if not followed, results in the indigenous population being moved out of bounds, in Moore's terms. This mentality towards land is in application in the American colonies, clearly enough, and the landscape of the American colonial imagination, perhaps even the American imagination over centuries, is wilderness. Wilderness, by definition, is landscape that has not been touched by human occupation, which is undeveloped. It is, in other words, terra nullius, unclaimed, unbuilt upon, dispeopled, in Hacklett's term. 
Of course, there are indigenous people, but they have gone, been moved off and driven off, more precisely, elsewhere. The elsewhere doesn't matter in imaginative terms because it does not register in the mindset of those moving into those now empty landscapes. Elsewhere, or out of bounds in Moore's terms, or beyond the pale in terms closer to home, accommodates a host of indigenous peoples, from North America to Australia to India to Africa, who are moved off of their land, robbed of it because of the belief in what was called in the American context manifest destiny, but which was echoed in other colonialist ideologies and enactments around the world. The recognition of a space as undeveloped seemed to be all that was required to make indigenous populations invisible and to pave the way for the idea of terra nullius. The American colonies were not officially declared terra nullius, but the landscape was treated as though it was unclaimed, and not only in promotional literature like Hacklet's that described what it had not yet seen and still insisted was wasteland. It was also treated as unclaimed in practice. Colonists and planters were given portions of land to tend, to cultivate, to transform from waste into production. Terms were often formalized with planters and farmers having tax suspended for a stretch of time. By the 1800s, following independence, frontiersmen could claim ownership of the land after cultivating it for a specified period. Both the ideology and the practice of land claiming would be carried with the English in a more evolved, legalistic, and official sense as they sought lands further afield after the American Revolution. When Watkin Tench and the First Fleet arrived in Botany Bay in 1788, in a hurry to compensate England for the commodity loss of the American colonies, and particularly the cotton industry that had gone with them, what they called New South Wales was declared terrenalius and claimed for the king in an official ceremony. Just as described in Utopia, the colonists take the excess people, in this case convicts quite literally considered waste and often criminally condemned as having wasted their God-given lives, from England and remove them to New South Wales where, Cook's accounts had assured them, the land was unclaimed. On arrival, Tench and the First Fleet find that things are different to what they'd expected. And here is where we get something different from Hacklett, who never made the journey to the Americas himself to make the transition from theory to practice. Tench quickly discovers that, he writes, the Indians were tolerably numerous, contrary to what Cook described, but this does not stop the party from laying claim one month after their arrival. That there was a formal taking of possession shows that the business of colonization was taken seriously. It was necessary to impose, as quickly as possible, a legal hold on the land that also brought into place English law more broadly. Just as it had not been in Hacklett's tracks, no anxiety was exhibited over indigenous claim on the land. Instead, the claiming of the land using specific longitudinal and latitudinal markers was aimed at avoiding other European claims. By this partition, it may be fairly presumed that every source of future litigation between the Dutch and us will be forever cut off, as the discoveries of the English navigators alone are comprised in this territory, Tench concludes with some relief after the ceremony. Where we see a significant difference between Hacklett and Tench, then, between the American colonial and Australian colonial period, is in the legal treatment of land and people. In the Australian claim, the land was deemed empty, null, because it was not marked by the signs of development that was recognized, arbitrarily, we might say now, as signifying the presence of a culture. If the land was undeveloped, it was unclaimed. If the land was undeveloped, so too were the people, and if the people were undeveloped, they were uncivil, barbaric, savage, and consequently did not exist. 
This chain of syllogistic reasoning, the colonial argument, deployed in countless settings and times, nullified not only cultural possession of a landscape, but nullified people. Tent had to assume that there was a greater population of indigenous people than he had thought, but this did not prevent him from creating a new logic for the colonial presence. I have already hinted, he writes, that the country is more populous than it was generally believed to be in Europe at the time of our sailing. But this remark is not meant to be extended to the interior parts of the continent, which there is every reason to conclude from our researches, as well as from the manner of living practiced by the natives, to be uninhabited. Like Hacklett, Tench provides notes for the English government back at home, who await an assessment of the territory. If only a receptacle for convicts be intended, as we know it was, this place stands unequaled from the situation, extent, and nature of the country. Indeed, 160,000 would make their way to New South Wales in the coming years, an act of long duration that only recently has drawn apologies from both British and Australian governments. Tent is concerned about the colony's commercial prospects, though, and its ability to produce enough food. The turning point in the colonization of New South Wales turns out to be the replacement for the lost American cotton. New Zealand flax, which was found to grow in abundance, would be the commodity that made the venture worthwhile. In all of this, the people are a byproduct, an afterthought of the colonial process. Relations between indigenous people and the colonizing settlers are noted, particularly when there is an early attack on the governor, but they are clearly waste and irrelevant to the larger aims of the colony. So they are driven off the land, made to leave when development begins to make indigenous food supplies more difficult to come by, attacked by the foreignness of diseases brought with the colonists. And, as a result, the new colony is made to become Terranullius. It would seem that the idea of the empty landscape, the idea of the wilderness, persists in Australian cultural memory just as it does in the American imagination. Like its American counterpart, the Australian national anthem emphasizes the natural bounty of the open landscape. The notion of the outback and the independent man in its midst is celebrated in popular songs like the bush ballad Waltzing Matilda, up to the 1980s pop resurgence that saw songs like Goanna's Solid Rock simultaneously celebrate the endlessness and sacred ground of Australia while critiquing white man, white law, white gun. Australia, the 2008 movie and the second highest grossing film of all time at the Australian box office, tapped into some mythos of national selfhood in the same way that American westerns do, with its narrative of the stockman in the outback. And just as Thoreau's Walden contributed to a mythos of American independence in nature, so the Australian Henry Lawson penned stories that defined an Australian national character based upon fierce grappling with a nature seemingly void of population. These depopulated landscapes lead to what, in an American context but also in an Australian one, are literatures that value the self in an empty landscape, run from which the threat of the elsewhere people is banished. It is, in a way, an explanation for the enclosure of the national park, which encircles wilderness and disavows people, except for uncertain conditions and terms. Admitted to the wilderness, one becomes truly American, truly Australian, at one with a nature that is separate from people, in submission to the sublime. The colonial rhetoric, no matter how much we disavow it, has made its way into certain aspects of cultural memory and persists in our considerations of American and Australian wilderness as ideal in its depopulated state. I wanted to spend some time away from Ireland initially, in part to demonstrate that wilderness traditions are actually a descendant of colonial attitudes towards land, 
and in part because the Irish case is different from both the American and Australian colonial situations. Unsurprisingly, some of the language we find in tracts about Ireland in the 16th century reflects that in English tracts on colonial America. Richard Hacklett is a contemporary of Edmund Spencer, John Davies, Richard Beacon, and others. But what I would like to suggest is that the clear concern in Hacklett and later Tench to declare territories dispeopled or terranullius must derive from the Irish situation. At the time Hacklett writes his tracts, Ireland is in the grips of the Desmond rebellions and the situation is declining. The plantation of Ireland is already underway and it is all too clear to the English planters, civil servants and officials that the land is occupied. Ireland has frequently been called an early colonial experiment and I think that this is borne out when we see the striking concern to declare subsequent territories unoccupied. The fact that this did not happen in India, where the beginnings of colonization were linked to companies, suggests that the commodification and annexation of the land followed directly from the commercial beginnings of the British presence there. No attempt was made to declare India terranullius. The justifications for settling in Ireland were, again, common to those we have already seen, were deployed in various arenas over time. The Irish were not using their land properly. Sir John Davies argues that though the Irishry possessed a land abounding with all the things necessary for the civil life of man, yet they did never build any houses of brick or stone. Neither did any of them in all this time plant any gardens or orchards, enclose or improve their lands. On discovering the presence of a greater number of indigenous people than expected, Tench will fall back on this rhetoric, which is the same as in Moore. And the same force that Hacklett describes will be brought to bear on the land and the people in the American colonies is echoed in Irish tracts of the period in common Elizabethan metaphors. Edmund Spencer, as one of the most infamous commentators on the Irish of the period, is often quoted on the potential of the land, the Irish people's failure to use it properly, and on how to deal with the issue. In a view of the present state of Ireland, Irenaeus recommends that garrisons of soldiers drive Irish rebels out of the woods by destroying the food supply. To ensure that the Irish would not be able to retreat back into the woods for shelter, Irenaeus recommends that order were taken for the cutting and opening of all places through woods, thus ensuring, too, the safety of English travellers as well as the ongoing servicing of the English navy. It is worthwhile rehearsing these kinds of quotations and reminding ourselves of Spencer's position, not to add to the damnations he continues to garner in Irish contexts, but because they demonstrate so vividly the problems of indigenous people in the colonial landscape, which was desired to be empty, but was clearly not. Spencer's time in Ireland saw, of course, the attempt at imposing laws that would change the ways in which land was managed permanently and contributed to crises of land ownership across the country. Legal ownership was established under the crown, but was at odds with more traditional ways of considering land. Indicative of this problem, Spencer, among many others, was given land in Cork. In the fiance of Queen Elizabeth, we see that Spencer was granted land as follows. Grant, English, to Edmund Spencer, gentleman, of the manor, castle, and lands of Kilcolman, County Cork, to hold forever in fee farm by the name of Haphazard, by fealty, in common suckage. Also, half a penny for each acre of wasteland enclosed. Power to impark. 151 acres, October 1590. There is a consciousness here in the parenthetical English that there is another set of cultural codes at operation with regard to Irish land. This is the first difficulty with colonizing a peopled space. 
The specificity of the grant is remarkable. I've left out a lot of the detail about rents that would be owed to Spencer by various tenants here, but have included the notation about the enclosure of wasteland, which would bring Spencer more money from the Crown, as well as the note about his entitlement to impark an additional space as forest land. Spencer's work and the work of his contemporaries on Ireland make it plain. Colonized landscapes, if they are not already and immediately declared empty, need to be emptied. In tracts of 16th and 17th century Ireland, there is a strong sense that it is not the landscape that is the problem, it is the people. Ireland's difficulty is that it is not depopulated. Spencer concludes, in a view of the present state of Ireland, that the land itself is as sweet a country as any under heaven. If one can drive the population west or to death as he outlines, Ireland would not be a problem. And so this colonial mindset requires a twofold belief. One, that the landscape has not been properly developed and so claimed is terrenullius in legal terms. And two, that the landscape is in fact thus depopulated already by virtue of this fact. The people do not count somehow if they have not staked claim in the same legal way as the colonizer. This would seem to be why the elsewhere that indigenous people must move towards does not initially trouble the imagination of an America concerned with manifest destiny. The people are simply not valued as people populating a landscape. Indigenous peoples do not go away, of course, and elsewhere begins to feel threateningly close, so that indigenous people trouble the fringes of the colonial and settler imagination, whether in 19th century America, 18th century Australia, or 17th century Ireland. Those elsewhere people are what cause restless cowboys in Colorado and New Mexico to sling guns and put up the puffed chest that matches the false fronts of the main street, which, in a bit of bravado, look for all the world like a completed town, but which in reality mask the urge of the place to slide into desertion out of fear. Those elsewhere people see convicts turned good in New South Wales row hard up bright rivers with their knives drawn and glinting in seething sun. Those elsewhere people are what cause Edmund Spencer to write of the Irish forests as if they were armies surrounding him, alert to the chance of capture. The indigenous populations in the space of elsewhere become, I suggest, ghosted populations, functioning, as cultural critics of many spaces have noted, as they repressed the darkness in the unconscious. If both the United States and Australian contexts continue to idealize a tradition of wilderness embodied in numerous cultural spaces and mediations, from Thoreau to the American cowboy and the now-dead Marlboro Man, from Watkin Tench to Crocodile Dundee and the also-dead Steve Irwin, the Irish situation is different, clearly. Many commentators have noted Ireland's function as an early colonial laboratory, and that status is important here. The populated nature of Ireland proved endlessly problematic, so that when it came time to establish further colonies, it was vital to have indigenous populations declared void and the landscape wasted. Undoubtedly, the sheer scale of the landscapes at stake is a factor too, but, curiously, the idea of wilderness does not persist in an Irish context. Instead, perhaps because this small island was quite overrun by the colonial project in a way that was not possible in Australia or the Americas, we seem consumed by the idea of development in a way that colonial commentators were themselves. Even in May of 2014, Enda Kenny and the coalition government announced plans to create 60,000 jobs in the construction sector in order to revive it and put people back to work. We groan at this reminder of what development has led to in an Irish context, a property bubble, economic collapse, NAMA, a bailout.
But, in an odd twist, our urge for development has, in fact, brought us face to face with wilderness, with terranullias, and with spaces populated only by ghosts. I gesture, of course, to our plethora of ghost estates. I want to return to the idea of national parks now, to the idea of them as ring-fenced wilderness, spaces in which we attempt to return to the sublime, that romantic experience of nature as overwhelming, as breathtaking and humbling. In both the American and Australian cases, that space of the countryside was envisioned as empty. This is perhaps why the space of the national park does not strike us as, in fact, unnatural. Baudrillard argued that the hyperreal space of Disney World, quote, is presented as imaginary in order to make us believe that the rest is real, when in fact all of Los Angeles and the America surrounding it are no longer real, but of the order of the hyperreal and of simulation. We might argue that spaces like national parks and enclosed wildernesses are similarly hyperreal, in the way that they refract that which is external to them with no referent. The wilderness, as such, as a space without people, never did exist in these now-nation spaces. So its enclosure stands as a marker for and legacy of colonial ideology in ways that our enthusiasm for environmental protection have perhaps overlooked. In an Irish context, however, it is different. What was enclosed here were the great estates. One has only to follow the hundreds of miles of stone walls around County Wicklow, for instance, to get a sense of how people were being shut out, not from preserved wilderness areas, but from areas that were demarcated, on the contrary, as civilization. Empty landscapes in an Irish context, while deployed in some tourist and romantic imagery, tend to function as signifiers of the sorrows and horrors of the past. The ravaged famine landscape, the village deserted by immigrants. It makes me wonder whether, as part of our own particular colonial hangover, we have developed a fetish for development. This is our imperial debris, as Anne Stoller has put it. The opposite of wilderness is development, but we have an odd turnabout now, whereby the development itself is a wilderness, depopulated and unpeopled except by ghosts. Ghost estates are both our new national parks and a vestige of colonial ruination. Stoller writes that, To speak of colonial ruination is to trace the fragile and durable substance and signs, the visible and visceral senses in which the effects of empire are reactivated and remain. But ruination, she continues, is more than a process. It is also a political project that lays waste to certain peoples and places, relations and things. To think with ruins of empire is to emphasize less the artifacts of empire as dead matter or remnants of a defunct regime than to attend to their reappropriations and strategic and active positioning within the politics of the present. To focus on ruins is to broach the protracted quality of decimation in people's lives, to track the production of new exposures and enduring damage. Ghost estates, I suggest, are productively read in this way. They are, in many ways, not simply signs of a contemporary rage for development in Ireland, but a long-durée marker of the urgency attached to development as a sign of civilization under colonial policy, a response to the emptied landscape of the 19th century and the tumble-down of centuries-old stone cottages. Perhaps the ruination that we now witness in countless towns and villages in Ireland speaks not only to policies of the Irish governments in the 1990s and 2000s, not only to cultural memorial impulses to rebuild that which was destroyed during the famine. Perhaps it speaks just as much to Moore and Hacklett, Spencer and Tench. B. 
Before closing, I want to return to the Woody Guthrie song that I sang in school, because there are many more verses to the song, which are more than often left out, including this one. It was a high wall there that tried to stop me. A sign was painted, said, private property, but on the back side it didn't say nothing. Another stanza commenting on the hungry asked, Is this land made for you and me? The you and the me are always arbitrary in colonial land assessments, so that depopulation became an inevitability, as was the treatment of the land with the same force applied to the people who do not count as contributing to culture. Perhaps in the end, the ghost estate is the ultimate colonial marker, private property that is dispeopled, beyond the pale, out of bounds. You have been listening to Una Frolli in this UCD ScholarCast as part of the series Irish Studies and the Environmental Humanities. A transcript of this lecture can be downloaded at ucd.ie forward slash ScholarCast. Music